As we continue our series on what Matthew saw and put into his gospel, we're going to be in chapter 6, which is the middle of what's called the Sermon on the Mount, a sermon that Jesus gave to the people that is recorded in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So we're right in the middle of it. Now, as we read into this passage, you're going to want to remember that for the group who would have been sitting on this hillside listening to this rabbi, they would have understood their faith in a few ways. They would have thought of the practices that mark it, their community life together, and also their faith's political implications. That is, following Yahweh their God was expressed in personal devotion, life together as a collective, and looking for God to work amidst the context of their land, which at the time is occupied by the Romans. So just keep that in the back of your mind. We're going to take this chapter in two parts. First, looking at what Jesus said as it related to a trio of practices, the main practices for first century Jewish people, prayer, giving, and fasting. And after we've looked at those, we'll circle back to just a couple of reflections on the Lord's Prayer. So we're going to start in verse one, where Jesus says, Beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them. For then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So whenever you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be praised by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your alms may be done in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. When you are praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. And whenever you fast, he says in verse 16, do not look dismal like the hypocrites for they disfigure their faces so as to show that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received the reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting may be seen not by others, but by your father who's in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So like I said, three main practices marked religious life at the time, prayer, giving, fasting. In fact, there is some debate about how much being faithful in these three was seen as more significant than making sacrifices at the temple, partially because they are more day-to-day and the temple was a special trip for many of them, expensive, far away, and not always accessible. But this could be part of regular life. And so it makes sense then that Jesus as a religious authority would offer commentary on them as a group. And for each one we hear from Jesus, but he's not the only one to record this, there's a public way of practicing these things. Loud, long prayers, grand public giving, obvious sympathy-inducing fasts. And then there's this other thread to this part of Jesus' sermon, which is reward. That can trip us up a bit if we've maybe been conditioned to think that following God is its own reward, which is in some ways true because of what it is to live in the love of God. But also, there is a biblical theme here in Matthew and in other places that God has goodness in store for those of us who trust God alone. And Jesus is recognizing that. We want good things from God. But how do we get them? You see, some people get those good things from God by claiming them for themselves. 
These are people who actually don't so much care about what God might have for them as they do about affirmation and attention and accolades. They've decided that's as good as it gets, and so they'll use religiosity to get them. And so to them, Jesus says, you've received your reward. The attention you get for doing these practices that way, that's the full reward of the practices. They're not going to do anything more for you. They certainly aren't going to connect you to God in any genuine way. You want attention, you get attention, and that's it. And in that manner, you've basically turned the practices into an idol of their own. And that idol will then offer back to you a sense of self-consciousness, meaning that you're always aware of yourself, of the affirmation you are or are not getting. And you will then find yourself trapped in a vicious cycle of seeking the affirmation of the practices over and over again. Now, just like Jesus did in the Beatitudes in chapter 5, Jesus describes vicious cycles, the ways that we get stuck and it drains our life. And also, Jesus describes alternatives, not because they're more righteous or more pious, but because the alternatives are more life-giving in the way we experience them, in how they form us, in the way they connect us to God. And so that's what Jesus is offering, a simpler, humbler, secretive sort of set of practices that would make us self-forgetful instead of self-conscious, meaning that we would be pulled out of ourselves and instead pulled towards God. That rather than assuming that God might not have a reward worth having, rather than assuming that attention and affirmation is as good as it gets, we would instead trust that a quiet and real connection with our God would be building us towards something even better than we can imagine. And then there's, of course, a different group of folks when it comes to these practices. Not only the group that wants attention, but the folks who love the checkbox version of these practices. Because see, if you check the boxes, you're entitled to the reward. So remember back, I said how Jesus' listeners would understand following God as including not only practices, but community life and the political world around them. Among the expectations of the day was that faithfulness, if I'm super good at prayer, fasting, and giving, and collective righteousness, if we are being right, that those would then entitle people to the political reward of God's favor in a revolution against the Roman occupation. God would be on their side to overthrow the government. N.T. Wright actually picks up on this and notes how one thing Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is settle in people's minds that they aren't meant to join the revolution. Because one thing stirring among first century Jewish people was a sense of entitlement to a Messiah who would bring the kingdom they wanted in the way they wanted it brought. And so if that's the expectation, then the people could create a checkbox version of religious practices so that when they check each box, they know they're entitled to the reward. But they're not alone in this. It's not just back then. We all have different ways we want to flip things so that we can control what God will do or how God works through our actions of what we see ourselves as doing for God. This might be expressed in a personal sort of way. The idea that if we please God, then God will do what we want or need. But it will create a vicious cycle of striving to please God, wondering if we have, and looking around wildly for rewards that match our expectations to see if it worked. And if we don't see those rewards, we might then conclude that God perhaps is not pleased with us. So we dig deeper and we try harder to do it again. When it happens at the personal level, it is exhausting and shame-producing 
It is a cycle of death, disguised as faith, as they often are. But this also has a collective or a a corporate sort of version nowadays of us wanting to control God through what we do and thereby bring the kingdom we want the way we want it brought. This sermon first happened the week after the insurrection of January 6th. And as we reflected upon that, it was one example of this vicious cycle where people want to control God. And so they create a checkbox system that they believe entitles them to the outcomes they want. And so broadly speaking, there is a cycle that sounds like this. Create a checkbox version of faith by creating a Christianity that is hyper-individualistic. Now make sure that all the boxes to check for that faith are aligned with whiteness as a construct. This way, a person's individual morality and religiosity is clear, concrete, and totally within their own power to accomplish. Then, of course, remember to define blessings as wealth and power so that when white Christians are rich and powerful, they can use it as evidence of moral superiority. And this will bolster their belief that they can fashion a kingdom of their own, one that holds their laws and their values. And the fact that it's not the kingdom of God is not really the point. Because at this point, the desire for the kingdom they want brought the way they want it is so strong. And if you create a system like this, you'll find that you have an entitled church. A church that is so sure that it's moral and deserves influence and deserves importance. The white church has felt entitled in this way. So in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, As he addresses the practices of prayer, fasting, and giving, he criticizes those who offer the loud, long prayers where they think they can control God by how they say them. He criticizes those who offer grand public giving, thinking that they can give enough to buy God's actions. He criticizes those who are obvious about the fact that they are fasting, as if them staying away from food forces God's hand. And why might they have done it then? Because it creates boxes to be checked. If you check the boxes, you're entitled to the reward. And white American Christianity stares this sense of entitlement because white supremacy has been poisoning faith in the U.S. for centuries. Sometimes it's like a slow poison, like the toxins that are leaching out of our plastics. But other times, and this week of January 6th was one example, the effects of the poison build up, spill over. But of course, the poison's in all of us. The symptoms are different for those of us who benefit from white supremacy than for the people of color who are supposed to comply with it. But no matter what, it hurts us all. And so to first century Jews with checkbox entitlement and to those who've built a kingdom for white supremacy, Jesus's words are the same. You've received your reward because we're invited into but not in charge of the kingdom of God. So much of Matthew's message is about framing what the kingdom of God is according to Jesus. And the kingdom of God is a place that will not be corrupted or commandeered by human ambition or arrogance. It won't be changed to adjust to what people want it to be. Instead, it will, if we let it, change us. The kingdom of God is a place where we could be humbled and healed and helped to live as the people God really hopes that we will be. The kingdom of God is the place where we can leave behind 
the striving for affirmation or accolades, where we could leave behind a checkbox faith so that we are trying to control God. And instead, we can trust the power of simplicity and secrecy. Instead, we can trust the God who will reward us in God's own way and that that reward will be worth it. Something more than affirmation. Something better than power. And something more lasting than anything that could happen when we design the kingdom. Now, with our last couple of minutes then, I'd like to look back to verses 9 to 13, which are the Lord's Prayer. Now, of course, anyone could cover this prayer at length, but for today, I just want us to see how having it here in the midst of Jesus's commentary on prayer giving and fasting, why that placement's so helpful. It wouldn't have been wholly unique for Jesus to give his followers a prayer. That was something that rabbis did. What is unique is first how simple this prayer is. It's a counter to those verbose, superstitious prayers that Jesus mentioned before. A second thing that is unique is how familiar the voice of this prayer is. Because the use of Father is an invitation to a tender connection with God. And third, this prayer is unique because of the way it is meant to form us. It invites anyone who prays it to be shaped by the kingdom, surrendering their desire to be the one who shapes it. Starting in verse 9, Jesus says, pray in this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from evil. It's a prayer that relinquishes entitlement. It's a prayer for your kingdom, your way. It's a prayer that trusts for provision so that we don't need to get what we have at the expense of anyone else. It's a confession. N.T. Wright notes that including forgive us in a prayer that Jesus clearly meant for us to pray often, daily even, must mean Jesus expected us to need it and have somehow been okay with that. This prayer is communal. It's written in the plural. It's for a group. And of course, an individual can pray it, but it is meant to keep us connected to the collective movement of people who want to follow Jesus together. And so God, here we are, gathered on Sundays and listening through this podcast. And yet your spirit can work in all these technological forms of gathering. And so we're with you, God, even now. And we want to live in your kingdom now. We want to see your will done. And we want to do your will. So God, when we are inclined to try to control the kingdom, forgive us. When we find ourselves wanting to control you through what we do, help us to pause And recognize that what you have for us is better. And that we can humbly, simply, perhaps even secretively, just come and find you again. You've invited us to follow you in pretty ordinary ways. And so help us today, tomorrow, and every day to say yes. Amen.